Welcome to the CTO Connection podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every week I'll be sharing an interview with a top engineering leader. Firstly, I want to thank AWS, who are our exclusive ultimate partner, and without whom we couldn't run our summits or the business. AWS offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Reach out to aws-cto-program at amazon.com if you're interested in learning more about their offerings. I'd also like to thank Code Climate, our sustaining partner. Code Climate is now offering full access to Velocity free for 45 days to the CTO Connection community. Velocity turns data from GitHub and Bitbucket into insights that improve the visibility of engineering work so that your team can stay aligned as they adapt to a distributed workflow. Check it out at codeclimate.com slash CTO Connection and use access code CTO Connection. I'd also like to thank our other sponsors, including Andela, Bugsnag, CircleCI, iTechArt, Carrot, LaunchDarkly, and Optimizely for their continued support during these difficult times. And now on with the show. Today I'm speaking with Rachna Kumar, who is VP of Engineering at Etsy. Rachna, thanks so much for taking the time to speak today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Uh, likewise, and uh, congratulations on the, the recent promotion to VP. Thank you. Now, I, I'm looking back over your history. So th- this is a question I ask almost all the guests. What went wrong? Right? Why, why, why aren't you writing software anymore? Why did you go from an individual contributor to a pointy head boss? What, what started to drive that transition? Yeah, I guess this was almost, um, I would say at least 12, 13 years ago, a while ago. And it's, it's the typical story, which I feel like at Etsy, we currently do a better job of like, there's no one to lead, manage. You go ahead and do it. But that's how I kind of started. I was, uh, at that given point in time, I was working at, uh, BET, Black Entertainment Television and Viacom, the larger company as, um, software developer and, I then kind of transitioned within there to being a tech lead, team lead kind of role. And then as the people started growing, the responsibility started growing. It was not like a conscious decision, like tomorrow I'm going to be a manager. It just happened. And uh, since then, after that also, I had a couple of jobs where I initially started as architect. But then again, um, because after Viacom, I went and worked for... um, tech nonprofit in India, actually, because I had never worked in a more senior leadership position in India. And I grew up there. And even there, I started as an architect, but as the team went from two other engineers to 20 people, so I was hiring and I was doing all the things managers do. So yeah, I was like leading engineering there. And I feel like in a lot of small companies, engineering management isn't so much a formal role as it's just the stuff you have to do after you finish coding. Yeah. And also if you, if you have good, uh, leadership instincts, which, and if you are like good at communication, kind of thinking through planning roadmap, I feel like you also sometimes kind of, oh, you're, you're good at these things. Let's just, you, you do more of it than you become a manager. <laughs> and I, I wish it was more deliberate. Uh, and I sometimes also wish I had stayed in the IC track for a little longer, but. I'm happy. I really enjoy leadership and management. I'm happy I'm here. And then uh, back in 2014, you actually took a little bit of a, of a side turn and you kind of co-founded a company. Were you a technical co-founder? Were you writing code? What did that look like? 
Yeah, that kind of started in 2012-2013. I came back from India to New York and I went to grad school at Columbia University. I have an engineering undergraduate degree, uh, but uh, my graduate school master's was more focused on international development and public policy. And I was very clear, I still want to stay in technology, but I think also the fascinating and amazing thing about being an engineer and working in tech is you can literally apply it to any industry or any field in any part of the world, right? So I was like then thinking of technology in terms of social impact and international development, and I ended up co-founding a nonprofit which, uh, whose mission was to redistribute surplus food from large events. It was mostly around weddings in India. That's how it started because when I myself was getting married, there were over a thousand guests at my wedding. And I was like, I didn't know a thousand of them. But, (laughs) you know, we we invite extended families and, you know, my mom's friends, my in-laws' friends and uh, their friends. So a lot of people come. And I was the caterer at our wedding was uh, one of our very good friends whom we had known for a long time. And I was like, how do you plan for a thousand people wedding, right? Like it, because there is no concept of RSVP either. Either 800 people can show up or 1200 people can show up. And he's like, we always cook more because you can never end up at a wedding with like not enough food for the guests. So we always cook in surplus. And that's what I was like, I'm sure if, if they always cook surplus, there's always like food remaining. And with all the Uber like solution for connecting X and Y, I was like, can't we connect food? If, if there is so much surplus food and also millions of people who are still below the poverty line who have big nutrition issues, can we at least connect some of the nutritious food from these events to social organizations? And that's when we developed an app and um, which would connect. It was more like a low-tech app at that given point in time because we had some limited grants through pitch competitions and that's how... Yeah, that's how it started. I was, um, I was, um, it was a two people team. Uh, so I was like founder <laughs> and coder and many things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I worked for a couple of startups like that where I was the CTO and there was me and the CEO. So I wrote the code and he raised the money and that was it. So, and, and then there was Etsy. So you joined Etsy in what, 2014? You, you must have seen a couple of changes in the company since then. Yeah. I have- Certainly seen a lot of changes and I think some really good, fantastic changes along the way as well. And uh, certainly we have uh, seen, gone from less than 100 engineers when I joined to, I think the overall the company was less than 200 people. So this was before we were a public company. So like getting out of the startup more to now a larger, you know, public tech company. So it's certainly been a very fascinating ride. And it looks like you've gone with it. So you started there, I think, as an engineering manager and you went through senior engineering manager, director of engineering, senior director and VP. So a very kind of traditional management path. Which of those changes made a difference? Was it like manager to senior manager, senior manager to director? When did you notice the biggest change in your day-to-day activities and what was it? Mm. I would say potentially when I got to director, like manager to senior manager was again... I was already kind of managing at that scale uh, where I was managing a couple of different teams, managing manager, doing all those things, which didn't seem very different. 
because the size of the group was also the nonprofit I worked in India was also kind of similar 20 some people that I was overseeing even as a senior manager when I got to a director and was only managing managers and not ICs anymore I felt like that's when I it felt like a different job <laughs> yeah because I was used to managing ICs for like a decade at that point and yeah yeah, and, and I've heard some people say that in some ways their experience is that once they move to director level, it's a little more like writing code again in that you're not you're absolutely dealing with people. Clearly, there are managers within your org, but you're now starting to build systems rather than just focusing on, hey, I've got eight people, got to keep them happy and manage their, their, their experiences. I agree because you're kind of also... It's interesting. I was telling one of one of the people who got a senior manager recently, the kind of small things you obsess over when you're a frontline manager, which is really good. I think it's important. But as a director, you're kind of thinking more like a system level, right? So you, you really need to zoom out more. And you're also at this point only managing leaders. So your um, people management it's still really, really important. Managing leaders is also really important, but it's not at the same level as managing someone, say, out of college because they need so much more attention, so much more guidance, whereas you're already managing leaders. So they're all your partners, even though they're your... I kind of think of, like, if I have three directors reporting to me now, I kind of think them as my partners. We collectively think of this problem together. I think that's a... Of course, there is coaching, but it's, the coaching is also different because they're all your partners and they're leaders. And then you're thinking of the large system problems across the ARG. Makes perfect sense. And do you expect, I know the, the VP role is new, do you expect substantial changes in the kind of things you're doing? Or is it more just that you are doing the same thing for a larger org? It's not drastically different. At least um, at, at Etsy, most jobs I've had, I've been doing it for some time before, like, I guess, you know, like, which is good. I feel like there is a trial period, like you're doing it well, then you get there. Uh, and I think one big difference current, like right now would be for me is um, I really enjoy coaching managers who are like new managers and helping them understand all the aspects of being a manager and I think I, I don't almost manage any, I won't be managing any frontline new managers anymore. All my peers have as much, all my reports have as much or more industry experience than me. So, and they have all been managers almost as long as a couple of them, even longer than me, right? So I think uh, that's one, I'll still be doing skip levels. I'll be meeting a lot of these managers, but I won't be doing that day to day because that's what they, that's what their managers do, and they're really, really good at it. So I think for me to kind of switch from that mode to again coming back to it's it's a partnership with all my direct reports who are all equally or many of them more smart, more experienced, and how do we collectively make the best decisions for the team? But I'm also really excited. This is like an ideal world as as a new VP. Uh, you can tell me and other people can tell me. <laughs> Maybe it's not true. In an ideal world, I also really enjoy working on long-term strategic problems for the company, be it technology, they're introducing a new technology or introducing, thinking of a new market or all these different long-term strategic problems. I'm hoping that I'll get a little bit more time now to kind of work on those things actively with managers across and even ICs across all levels so within my org. Makes perfect sense. 
Now, later this month, you're going to be giving a talk on leading through rapid change and transformation in tech. Could you tell me a little bit about what experiences caused you to say, this is a talk that I really want to share? Yeah, I think um, it kind of, I've been thinking about this for some time and especially as, um, as my own experience at Etsy, right? Like I've, as I said, I've seen the company grow from a startup to then now we are kind of a mid-sized company, but also most importantly, the way company operates and the way you track metrics, everything is so different once you IPO as well. And, uh, and it's been a, a few years since Etsy IPO, but like I've seen a lot of changes since then, uh, particularly in 2017. And recently I've been talking to other engineering leaders across many companies in tech who, who IPO'd in 2019 are planning to IPO in 2020 and all the ch- um, changes within those companies as well. I was like, I think I can share something based on my experience of uh, seeing Etsy's transformation across uh, through the years. Yeah, definitely. So, what were the big differences you noticed moving from managing engineering within a private company, then moving through the IPO and and being a public company? What what changed? Yeah, of course, one is the compliance things and <laughs> making sure everything in the code is. Uh, goes through different levels of approval, not everything, especially things that have financial uh, implications and that we are compliant across the board, which um, which I think Etsy does really, really well. But it's also on a quarterly basis when you have earnings calls and kind of uh, reporting on how you're doing financially. When you're a private company, how much of your internal workings and the things that you're doing, you can, it's completely, of course, you know, it's private. <laughs> so, whereas uh, when you're a public company, in the past, on a more tactical level, maybe I used to think of things on an annual basis. How, how, how does, what are we supposed to do about either our KPIs or numbers more on an annual basis? We still, at large, plan everything for annually, but uh, the checkpoints for how we are doing is, once in six weeks, eight weeks, and which is more frequent, which I think is good because sometimes in the past we wouldn't know if something's working, not working for a for a long time. Whereas now we have more clear checkpoints and more clear accountability and transparency around these things, which seems like a lot of work to put that and process to put it in place. But also, I think I find it helpful, at least as a leader, I have visibility into what's happening. Makes perfect sense. So to dive into those, maybe one at a time. In terms of compliance, uh, how do you even start to find out what the compliance, like, I mean, I've worked in engineering for a while. I have no idea what the compliance requirements are for an engineering org. How did you start to do that? Were you working with an external consultant? Were you like desperately Googling for answers? Like how, how did that work? I think it's a combination of both. <laughs> That's it. And uh, I was not directly involved in it. And uh, at that point, I, I'm still like more focused on product engineering. But the people on the infra and data side were, uh, we had like a full squad that was focused on one we have, of course, hired consultants who understood how to do these things. And we worked with, outside agencies as well but all the work was for sure driven internally by by the engineering team here and there was dedicated 
teams working on it. And even now, like, you know, we have to go through socks and few other things as even if you're in product engineer, if you're an IC, there are different levels of access to numbers and metrics. Not, of course, everyone in the company has the same access. When you say when you're a st- startup and um, it's like this, I'm joking, but also might be, you know, it's like a Beyonce opens an Etsy shop. If, you know, any engineer yeah. can query, you know, query <laughs> uh, and see if Beyonce has the Etsy shop. Now we can't absolutely do that because, uh not everyone has access to all levels of data. And of course, with GDPR and other things, everything, all the information is also, we don't want even internally for people to see user information. So all the user information is also completely protected. But if you're a 10 people company and if there are like five engineers working on it, the, the way it works is completely different. We, we try, of course, that's one big difference. All the user data is private now. It's completely masked. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense because when you're kicking something like that off, I mean, I've you know worked on a number of companies where it's just like I'm just going to go into the database, the production database, and see what the data is, and I'll take a dump of that, and you know maybe if I'm feeling super clever, I'll apply some transformations to the names and the emails and stuff to stop it from being personally identifiable. But you've got a three, five, ten person engineering team; that's not usually your first priority. So that makes sense in terms of uh, driving the, the data privacy. And of course, you've got your SOTs and you know, GDPR and stuff like that, which you need anyway as a large company. But did you also notice that it drove engineering practices in, in a positive or negative direction? Was it better and or more important to have continuous integration, test coverage, things like that? Yeah, I think the good thing, at least about Etsy, was we were one of the first tech companies at our scale. Even when we were much smaller, to do have a full CI/CD, you know, continuous integration and deployment pipeline, everything set up. And as someone who was head of engineering in a nonprofit, two nonprofits before Etsy, when I came here, I'm like, what do you mean by I don't have to worry about how we deploy? As as an engineering manager in product engineering, even at that scale, when I joined, we had a fully automated system, which I think was. A really, really good uh, move on than CTO who was like dead. And uh, one of the first things he did was that, which I, I think was fantastic. And one of the certainly less things to worry about as an engineering manager, because I was so, I'm like, oh, you mean I didn't have to worry about the infrastructure entry, and which I had to in my last two jobs before Etsy. Whereas few things, of course, we scaled, right? Like across the board, both in terms of technology and engineering practices were um, starting from like when I started, there was no career ladder of any kind at Etsy or uh, competency matrix of any kind. And we've gone through many iterations of that. But just as a manager, when I started, if I'm having promotion conversations, it's like, oh, it's certainly not at my discretion, even though like managers have some input. It should be like more 360 degree, everyone collectively. It felt like a little black box of how these decisions were being made. And uh, with a smaller team, a group, it's much easier to communicate that. Like, you know, everyone knows everyone. The minute everyone stops knowing everyone, uh, you know, how, how do we make sure it's scalable and transparent? So in the people aspects of engineering, we we put we put in a lot of effort and um, into those things in on career development, career management, and actually the rest of the company, either in product or marketing, they all kind of take what engineering does and they apply to their own disciplines. And um, in terms of um, scaling the technology, as well, of course, from um, 
on the database side, when we started, you know, it was uh, just servers. To, and then kind of thinking how to shard, making sharding happen to, of course, now uh, the most recent one since in the last couple of years has been um, our migration to cloud and all our infrastructure is in the cloud. Now we, we just finished that project. I I also oversee the mobile apps arc at Etsy. And even within that group, right? Like we've just gone from like less than 10 engineers to over 50 mobile engineers and even making sure CICD on mobile as well and uh, scaling because the growth from 10, 15 engineers to 50 has happened in the last three years on the mobile front. So like constantly evaluating all the technology and process. And as we grow, tweaking them along. Like what worked last year certainly doesn't work in the mobile arc this year if you add 30 other people. And now some exclusive offers for my partners. Amazon Web Services offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Partnering with CTO Connection, AWS is now offering an exclusive program to our listeners. The program includes up to $100,000 of AWS credits, a free consulting session with an AWS solution architect to review your environment, your strategies, and optimize your costs, and other resources to help you to get started on migrating to AWS. If you're interested in learning more, please reach out to aws-cto-program at amazon.com. To lend a hand to those ramping up remote engineering processes, Code Climate is offering the CTO Connection community 45 days of full access to their engineering analytics application, no strings attached. Velocity turns SCM data into actionable insights so leaders can get visibility into the speed, capacity, and output of their newly distributed teams. Your 45-day package will include access to the full capabilities of the Velocity Professional Package, a consultation with a product specialist who will map your key initiatives to data, and a training session for engineering managers and executives about how to interpret and apply this data in a way that engenders trust. CodeClimate hopes that this will equip engineering leadership to take on a new set of challenges in the weeks ahead. To request access, head to codeclimate.com slash CTO Connection and use the code CTO Connection. Now, one thing, I feel like Etsy was probably the first place for me personally that I came across the idea with the, the what is it, Coding Craft blog? Yeah. Um, the, the idea of feature flagging. Now, obviously, that's becoming ubiquitous now, but I feel like Etsy was one of the earlier adopters for that. How has that changed? What I see a lot of companies doing now is if they're serious about feature flagging, we're getting people who are getting out of the whole, we, we, we don't need no feature branches. We're just going to commit directly to trunk and deal with things using feature flags. How far down that road do your teams go? Do you do you still have feature branches? Do you oh, merge yeah. them in every day? Okay, you, you, it's not just like 500 people deploying to trunk every day. No, it's uh, not. We usually try not to trunk as much, but we certainly use feature flags extensively almost all the time. Like at Etsy, like I think like at least if you're an engineer here at Etsy, you think of uh, even if like... Of course, the large changes, if you are, like last year, we enabled, say, free shipping on Etsy, right? Which I feel almost feels like in e-commerce, Amazon has free shipping and other, like, so shouldn't everyone be having free shipping? But what makes Etsy a little different is also we control no inventory and even our sellers don't stock everything and keep. They make the item and 
each individual seller almost ships it just that one package. So it's, yeah, it's not like a big um, supply chain that everything is controlled by Etsy. So uh, rolling out free shipping was a very coordinated effort. First of all, we need buy-in from sellers. They need to agree to join the program and we make like a big announcement for those larger ones. Of course, everything then goes into a feature flag and we enable it whenever we want to kind of push all of them out at the same time. But even for smaller changes, we use config and feature flag all the time. It's whatever you have read on code as craft is still valid. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. And then you, I, I know that when you were proposing the talk, you said that there were three important tools yeah. that you wanted to share to equip individuals to lead their teams through significant organizational change. So let, let's spill the beans. What are the, what are three things that people should be thinking about if they are leading an engineering team and there are going to be these big external changes? Yeah, this is all like core, like management and leadership things, which I don't think is drastically different, but it's also how do you kind of think of them during these periods of the drastic change is a little different. So the three areas that I mentioned in the blog, as well as the first one is um, focus and resiliency. Second one is communication and transparency. And the third one is managing up and down. As managing, all these things are really important, either ways to be a good leader, but uh, I can give you specific examples of, uh, say, how is it different, specifically when leading through big changes? Yeah, so, so let's do that. So the, the first one you mentioned then was focus and resiliency. Yeah. If I have to pick among the all three things, if you know what is the most important one uh, during times of big changes or even high stress, I would say it's um, it would be, if I had to pick one, it would be focus and resiliency. Do you know what I mean by, and I, the, I, I can also tell you the reason I put them together, right? Like, um, because... Um, just being either resilient without clear focus on when you come out of these large changes, what the outcome is, I think it's not enough. And just even focus on this, I want to be the outcome. It's not good either because you're, everything around you is changing so quickly. You also need to be resilient. So I, I, I feel like both of them go hand in hand. And um, if I have to kind of think of examples of what I mean by that is like for the focus one, at least, um, so in Etsy's case, in 2017, when when we had new management and um, one of the few first things we did then was um, at least our CEO, Josh, and the executive team decided to do was to kind of look at all the portfolio of things that we are working on and see if it makes sense to continue working on all of them. Especially if uh, one of the things that happened then was our core business of Etsy.com was not um, getting the most attention, which sounds, when I say it, it sounds like, how, how is that even possible? We had uh, we had a few other marketplaces which were, and I had led a couple of the new marketplaces that we had launched and which, um, which ended up uh, taking a lot of resources within the company. And they were not the primary business driving ones. Did some of them have potential? The answer is yes. Were they really good ideas? The answer is also yes. But um, where was most 
potential was still in our core business of what makes Etsy special and not the new marketplaces that we were building, right? And it was it was a hard decision to make to stop working on all of them. I eventually even led a team to sunset those products. And as someone who helped ideate from idea to execution to launch everything for those products, sunsetting was not easy, but that was the right move at that given point in time. Because we really needed to focus on the core Etsy.com, like making our search better, making the experience for our buyers better. We have like 45 million buyer, active buyers on Etsy who come and use the site and the app all the time. And just helping them find and buy and give them all the information to buy the right thing. Because it's also unique items. Finding things on Etsy is not so straightforward because we have so many one of you unique items so one of the decisions then was to really focus on the core market marketplace and making that experience better both for our buyers and sellers yeah i think as in general as leaders but across the board at all levels in engineering resiliency is a really really important trait because when things are going well of course it's really much easier to be a good leader a true test of whether someone's a good leader is when things are not going as you plan them to. And I think that's where like being resilient is really, really helpful when, when a company is going through large changes. Like say in my own case, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I'm also a female leader in tech. I have uh, also grown up in a fairly patriarchal society. And I'm also a mom. Being a parent is also makes you resilient in some ways because kids always don't do things as per your plan. They do whatever they feel like best doing. And I feel like a lot of those things was really helpful in kind of leading through big these big changes because I've also worked in five different countries. And I, I up to a certain extent, I really also enjoy situations where things outcome of it might be a little unpredictable, but I, I can also see how a lot of people feel uncomfortable during these situations. So in general, my advice to other managers and leaders is also, if you're seeing your company go through change, I know if even if the market is good outside, don't think of should I jump ship immediately. Sometimes it's good to stay because if you don't have those muscles of resiliency, it's a great time to build it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And irrespective of the outcome, there is maybe there is a shelf life to how long you can take the changes. If you set a decent shelf life for your for that, I think it's a really good opportunity to also build resiliency. If you if you've not had big life changing experiences in the past, makes sense. And then, so the the second item you talked about was communication and transparency. Yeah. I think communication and transparency is important always, right? It doesn't have to be only when when you're leading a group through large changes. And a um, few things just to highlight from my experience, if I had to think of a couple of things every leader should be doing is during when there is un- uncertainty and large changes, I also feel like there's like a lot of gossip and misinformation circulating. So one of the things I highly encourage people to do is also communicate as frequently with whatever information you have that you possibly can share, please share it. Even though it, it, I feel like sometimes as leader, we want it to be perfect, right? Like we want the messaging to be perfect. We want all the information. When things are moving very quickly and changing rapidly, the information also keeps changing. 
So as frequently and as clearly you can share it, the better it is. And one of the things I did myself at Etsy, even related to communication and transparency was I still do a one-on-ones. I do like office hours and all these other things. But I think I did more of that during, and it was very, very time consuming. So like I said in the beginning of the podcast, I would like to make more time to think, do more like strategic stuff. Of course, uh, now it's a good time. Overall, things are moving very well. Whereas when things are changing very rapidly and the outcome and the future is a little uncertain, I think if you spend a little less time on long-term strategic things and focus more on short-term communication and transparency, even though it it seems a little counterintuitive, making time for it is really important. And sometimes you might not even have all the answers yourself was another thing I realized. I would go to one-on-ones, both like with people in my org, also in my peer groups, like product and research and testing. And I would just listen to them. Sometimes people just want to went to a leader and feel heard. And I might not have answers to all their questions, but again, being a good listener is another skill I feel like Maybe women have a little more naturally, even if you don't have it, it's like just sit and listen. And that's another skill you can build during during these changes where people are like, okay, leadership wants to hear what I'm going through. Even if they don't have all the answers, they still feel a little reassured. Right. And I think it's sometimes important to realize that the purpose of communication is not always to find the answer to the problem. Sometimes it's just to sit with the problem or to support someone in another way, or even just to make them feel heard. So it's like, okay. It still sucks, but at least she agrees it sucks. Exactly. It's just acknowledging that when things are not going well, that I want to acknowledge that I'm there with you. I empathize. My husband sometimes jokes that um, during college, I I could, like, we went to college together. I could sit with friends and and listen to all their relationship woes. He's like, that's not you well for, like, leadership. Listen, you you have no solution, but you can sit and listen, and that makes them feel heard. Yeah, it's and I think it's but it's an incredibly hard skill because when you've got a background in software engineering, I think the natural approach you don't just sit there with compiler and accept the bug, right? It's like okay, let's just fuel that bug together, right? You're, You're solving the bug, you're solving the problem, you're resolving the challenges, and to just be able to sit with something, I think is is a skill you have to develop. Exactly, I think you you summarized it really well as engineers we are so like let's break this down into a logical step and build an algorithm around it and that's how we think right like if as engineers if we see a problem we need to break it down and we need to fix it and whatever i mentioned is a little count it's opposite of what we typically do even though a lot of times i took all the information from different people and i tried breaking it down and coming up with a solution maybe two weeks, a month from now. But as a leader, you have to step back from the engineer that you are and not immediately propose a solution. Makes perfect sense. And then that rolls us into then the last part that you mentioned was people management. So managing up and down. So how does that change when there's when there's a growth period or substantial changes? I think the people management aspect at Etsy, at least till at that given point in time, and even the last job, the nonprofit I worked in India was both were periods of hyper growth, right? So when it's period of hyper growth, it's very 
Like, you know, if you have one senior engineer, if you hire two junior engineers, this becomes the leader. And it's like you can, when more people are being added to the team, it's, uh, and you're growing very quickly, the numbers are growing, the users are growing. It's just the opportunities just keep presenting themselves. And, and that was the mode I was used to managing and coaching people, even though I had to constantly think how to scale. But then we reached a point where we were not growing at the same time. The company was growing, the numbers was growing, but it was not growing at the same pace. And even the number of people within the company were not growing at the same pace. Then how do you retain people, especially when things are a little uncertain and the future is a little uncertain was at least required me to step back a little, but then my own mode of it's hyper growth and this is how I'll manage teams. Uh, and I kind of was like, how do we reframe the narrative, right? Like if that's the narrative that I'm used to, how do I reframe the narrative? And one of the things I was also transparent about was like, this is going to be hard and the growth of number of people that we are hiring and adding at least for the next few months, three, four, five, six months, might not be the same that we were used to at one point in time. But the way I thought about it was like, hey, look, this is a great opportunity for you to grow. Because when the company is trying to turn around, even the small things that you do can have large impact. And there are areas with also attrition, there are areas that is kind of unknown. And there is like gaps for leadership across the company. It's like, so... I went into a mode of selling where are the gaps and changing the narrative a little bit and trying to convince them on where they can own things and grow and also acknowledging the fact that it's going to be hard. There are limited resources, but you're expected to do more than used to before. And I think some people who did really well with ambiguity and that uncertainty have been really successful at Etsy. Rachana, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you. Thank you.